Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. All right, let's do this. Good morning, Vox Community. Look at all of your beautiful faces here at 9 a.m. Yeah. Um, but do not come at 9 a.m. next week because we will be still setting up. <laughs> so uh, next week we're actually going to one service, um, and that will be at 10 a.m., and it'll be fantastic and great. Yeah. If you want to help set up, um, yeah, you can let us know. We'll jump you guys in. Um, so my name is Andy. I'm actually one of the uh, directors here uh, at Box Community. And um, this past week, I think I realized that I invented a time machine uh, kind of by accident. Um, for the past year or so, um, I have been telling everybody I've been 35 years old. And so uh, when it was my birthday this week, I was talking to the staff, and I'm like, yeah, I can't believe I'm turning 36. And they were like, you're turning 35. <laughs> and I was like, no way. And as it turned out, they were right. So I actually gained an entire year back of my life this week, and so I will actually officially be 35 all year long. How about that? See, anybody can do that. Um, so that was fun. And then on top of that, I woke up the day of my birthday and I actually forgot it was my birthday anyway. So uh, <laughs> signs of being 35, I guess. <laughs> and with three kids, young ones. Um, so anyhow, uh, thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, what we're doing here and what we're going to be doing this morning. Um, Tim Mulehoff is here today uh, to do some teaching with us, a uh, good friend of ours, and um, we've always enjoyed... Um, him, his impersonations, and looks a lot like Mike. So uh, we love that. Um, I really did not plan on coming out here and trying to be funny. <laughs> um, is it? Okay, thanks, John. <laughs> you could laugh at me, and that will just make me feel like we're doing things right here. Um, listen, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm super tired. And that's just because I'm going to force home after this, and I was packing and cleaning really late for our house sitter. And then I had to get my three kids and wife in the car this morning at 5.30, and so... I'm swinging right now. So I'm going to actually use my notes so I don't forget important things here. <laughs> Perfect. All right, good. I'm doing good. Okay, so, um, so in a minute here, I'm going to have Chris come out, and he's going to share a little bit of his story. Um, after that, we're going to do a little bit of worship. Tim's going to come out, and then um, we're going to celebrate Eucharist together. And for those of you um, that are new to Vox Community, um, uh, communion is what uh, this church is built upon and um, what we come here to gather and do every single week. Um, we've got a schedule of a lot of incredible dynamic teachers and speakers coming up here over the next few weeks. But for us, the, uh, the loudest voice that we want to make in the room is is Jesus' voice around the table when we approach it. And so our hope is that uh, with all the different things that we do here, um, with doing worship, with doing teaching, uh, with telling stories, that these are all moments of preparation that take us into celebrating communion together um, to kind of reset our hearts and develop a posture um, that says um, and that asks that God might actually have something for us this morning. Um, I often say that 
um, as an encouragement for you guys to that we be willing to be surprised today. Um, that when we approach communion and engage in worship, that um, that we're hopeful and could believe that God would actually speak to us and uh, cause some form of, of reorientation um, in our heart. So what we're going to do is um, during the communion time later, uh, we also have uh, prayer stations up here. Um, there's just a little bit of parchment paper where um, you can write down prayers, um, anything that you guys need, and stick them inside of the holes there. Um, we have a prayer team that's praying for you uh, all week long, 24-7. Um, in addition, we actually have some prayer shawls there um, that symbolize actually a moment um, uh, during uh, Jesus' life where a woman that was seeking healing had to break her way through a crowd on her hands and knees just to touch the tassels that were at the bottom. And it, it, was, it was considered in, um, in the Jewish tradition history that when the rabbis and priests were wearing these, that there was a form of healing in what's called the tzitzit uh, that's there too. So if, if you're coming in this morning and, and needing to pause to pray and, and find some healing, um, that's just a simple symbol there that you can engage with there. Um, we have communion stations all around the room. Um, the vegan and gluten-free option is over here on the right. Um, and in addition, um, if you guys are interested in participating with us with your generosity, uh, we have uh, boxes um, at, at both of the doors as well, so you can do that too. Uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to bring Chris out here in just a second, and uh, just to kind of help you guys understand, uh, one of the convictions we hear at Vox, have at Vox Community is that the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. So we do this in a couple ways. Um, one way we do is we actually do offer uh, Q&A at our services. Today we're not doing Q&A, but uh, we'll be having that um, return next week. Um, so you'll see during uh, the sermon time on the slides, there's actually a phone number. Actually, Bob, if you can put up that phone number too uh, here in a sec. Uh, but if you guys have any questions at all uh, that you would have um, have want to be answered, uh, both in service or on a Facebook Q&A that we do, um, you can text them to that number there. Some of you like to text us um, entire paragraphs, and that's fine. <laughs> so we'll take those too. That's great. Um, and then the other way that we try to model for the church to be a safe place to talk about anything is uh, being able to share stories of uh, pain and process. Um, we pretty much hold true that we don't really think we've all got it figured out. There's a lot of you that have um, shared with us that come in here that are going through some form of pain, some form of process in your faith, um, asking questions of God, asking questions of each other, asking a lot of questions of the church, and all of those are welcome. Um, and so uh, at this time, I'm going to go ahead and have Chris come out and share a little bit about his journey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, Chris has been with our team for a little bit. He's played worship with us uh, for a little while, and we like him very, very much. So I'll hand this over to you. Here you go, bud. Good morning. Hi. I'm Chris, and my family and I have been attending Vox since November. My story starts out being raised outside the church. We would attend a Lutheran church on Christmas and Easter, and maybe a handful of times throughout the year. I've always loved two things, the pursuit of truth and pleasure. In high school, I got very into drugs. I would buy, sell, steal, and trade. Toward the end of high school, I got away from the drug and party scene and began to feel a spiritual calling on my life. After high school, I began to read the Bible, pray, and seek God in earnest. One night, while driving on the freeway, I was praying and felt an unmistakable presence with me in the car. I remember saying out loud in the car, Whatever is happening right now, I never want it to end. 
I can only explain it as a supernatural experience, and no, I wasn't on drugs at the time. I don't think. I, I probably wasn't. No, I wasn't. If I had to mark a time in my spiritual journey when I became a believer, it would be that night on the 22 freeway. I was 18 and had an intense zeal for God. I look back on those years with fondness because they were some of the most joyful and carefree years of my life. I was reading the Bible, praying for hours, sharing with people on the street, and started leading worship. I went to a Christian college and landed my first gig as a worship leader. From 18 until I was 33, leading worship was a main source of my income, and I worked at a variety of churches ranging from Lutheran to Pentecostal and every Orange County megachurch in between. Throughout those years, I began to resonate with what ostensibly uh, Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. The problem with the church is that it's made of people, and people, myself included, are mostly full of crap. Throughout my 20s and early 30s, I found myself enamored with so many reformed evangelical theologians and preachers who seemed to have an answer for everything and who systematically theologized their way into dogma. It's a theology joke, if you get that there. System. No, just me? Cool. <laughs> I realize now that I was so drawn to that brand of faith because it offered me a sense of control. Over the past few years, I've found myself less and less interested in debating theology, the historicity of the Bible, and so many other Western traditions, which I found compelling for so many years. My wife and I were excited to find Vox because we felt like it was free of the cultural Christianity that permeates the evangelical church. For so many years, I would defend vehemently all five points of Calvinism, and now I literally couldn't care less about any of them. For so many years, I would find myself sitting in self-righteous judgment of those who didn't articulate their faith exactly as I did, or those who didn't share my faith at all. I find myself more and more simply empathizing with them as humans now and realizing that they have no more or less access to God than I do. I love the Bible more than ever, but I have zero desire to prove to anyone that there really was a worldwide flood or that Elijah was literally taken up into the sky. I feel that there is a movement of Christ-loving, Bible-loving Christians who are deconstructing their faith and all the traditions that go along with it, and I'm very happy to be on the journey with them. And now I'm perfect. Now I've got it all figured out, and um, I would consider myself just the model. No, now, now, I, have, <laughs> now I have a whole new set of <laughs> people to sit in judgment of, which would be, you know, dogmatic um, uh, <laughs> religious people. So, you know, it's, it's, I, wherever you go, there you are, right? I'm the same person, um, but that has been my journey to date. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Chris. Yeah, we, uh, we love that. One of the other convictions we have here um, is that uh, the church, um, see, here's my tiredness coming out again. <laughs> oh, that the church would love and serve the world and not stand in judgment of it. And um, it's so, it's been fascinating to walk in that idea and walk in that conviction. And when I, when we kind of heard Chris's story in that, it's hearing that transition of being able to become a person of peace and a person of grace that um, would open their home and, and be hospitable to others at any moment's notice um, to put kindness and love and grace as the entryway to truth in who Jesus is. Um, it takes a lot of work. And, uh, you know, I just hope, may it be true that absolutely that we've become the kind of place where we're able to do that, learn how to do that, and do that well with and for each other. So um, he's just going to go ahead and we're going to do a little bit of music, and then Tim's going to come out. Um, and yeah, for, for those of you who, who love um, 
He's been doing church for a while and been Christians for a while. You know, absolutely, this is a time to, to engage, to seek God, to, to seek that depth. And then there's a lot of us in here who come in. Um, even I, I've, we've met a handful of worship leaders that have started coming here um, where sometimes doing the normal church thing and, and standing and completely releasing uh, just sometimes doesn't feel right based on where we're at in life. So you absolutely have the permission to to sit, to ponder, to wonder, to hear the words, to listen to the words. Um, at the end of the day, uh, we just invite you guys to press into that and to engage. There's no coercion here. Um, we have no expectations, um, but rather we invite you guys uh, this morning to, to be a part. So, thanks. That's great to listen to you. Welcome, Vox. Hello. We have been attending Box for the last three, four months. We absolutely love it. Um, I've said to my wife on so many occasions leaving, there's just something happening here. There is the presence of God here. And it's through the Eucharist, it's through Mike's teaching, it's through worship. Uh, so it's, it's a powerful thing that God is doing here. And so we absolutely love coming here. Uh, and then in addition to that, Mike and I would have these epic breakfasts. He would, we'd go to IHOP. He loves IHOP. I had never gone to IHOP before. And so we'd sit at IHOP. We'd talk politics. We'd talk evangelism. We'd talk about the church, what it needs to do. I have a brand new book that just came out. Mike's fingerprints are all over it. He endorsed the book. And so we, we talked about uh, doing evangelism together. Let's go to UCLA. Let's go to USC. Let's go to um, all the different campuses, Berkeley. And let's just go and, and talk about God in a way that non-Christians would feel comfortable and that, that whatever you're struggling with, your sexual orientation, your, your political background, let's just go do all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, man, come and teach at Vox, and wouldn't it be cool if we even co-taught with each other? And I said, man, Mike, that'd be great. I, I think we push each other in different directions. He calls me a more refined version of himself. <laughs> I said, I prefer better looking, but let's not quibble on semantics. And so... We go off to Cambridge. My wife and I leave. We just got back. We went off to Cambridge and had long walks about what would it look like at Box and stuff like that. And then we came back, and Mike says, man, I got some really bad news. My mom's really sick, and I got to go. I'm, I'm leaving. I said, like, when? He goes, like, within two weeks. And so I, I don't know how you're processing it. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced Box can continue. I'm absolutely certain Mike can do a great, his teaching is phenomenal, and I don't doubt that he can do it um, via Skype, but it's not going to be the same. It's just not. And so I'm processing that, kind of having dreams not die, but be altered. It's okay to be in that space. Um, so whenever I have moments like this, where God just does something that I didn't expect, I I always think of this passage in Romans where Paul is going to want to talk about why do you believe God's good? Uh, to Paul, that's the most important question you can ask as a believer. Why do you believe God's good? And I think as American Christians, we really struggle with the answer to that question. So maybe I'm the only one struggling that way, but I thought I'd speak about it. Mike wanted me to talk about my book, which I think I will in the future, but right now I feel like we're in a stage where we kind of need to process a little bit and hear from the Word of God what Paul would have to say about this. So let me set it up this way. How many of you, you're the youngest in your family of origin? You're the youngest. Show of hands. 
Okay, how many of you just have older brothers? You're the youngest and you just have older brothers, okay? That's me. I have two older brothers. When you're the youngest and you just have older brothers, you're the test dummy of life, okay? <laughs> your, parent, your, your brothers think of things for you to do, and of course you do it. You're the youngest. My mom was not a seamstress. She just didn't do that. But she was so concerned to have a really good Easter picture that she made red jumpers for me and my two older brothers. It took her all year to do this. Then she made the tactical mistake of letting us play before the photograph, which was going to be right before dinner. We are standing at my grandfather's house. There's a huge pile of leaves. My two older brothers say to me, you should jump in those leaves. I do, because I'm the youngest brother. I jump in, goes right up to my chest, as then we realize what a compost is. My brother Ken tries to help me. I pull him in. Now two of us are in there. My brother Bob just kind of backed away. We all look to the window, and my mom is carving ham with a very large knife looking at us. And I will never forget my grandfather. Ken and I are now naked. He's had to take these things off and is hosing us down. Now, my brothers and I fought like crazy, but there's always one thing I knew about my two brothers. They would always be there when the chips were down. I could count on my two older brothers. So one time in junior high, I'm sitting in school, and these two kids from high school pop their heads into the window, point at me. I have no idea who they are. And they said, we're going to beat the crap out of you after school. And they didn't use the word crap. And I, I looked at them like, and they just walked away. The teacher walked up to me and said, are you okay? And I said, well, I, can I call home? Yes. So I called home. I said, Mom, have Bob and Ken meet me at the green generators after school. My mom was like, what, what, is everything okay? Mom, tell Bob and Ken to meet me at the green generators after school. So sure enough, after school, these two high school kids walk up to me and say, we're going to beat the, I said, okay, let's go to the green generators. So we go to the green generators. I'm not a Christian at the time, but I, I prayed the most sincere prayer <laughs> I have ever prayed in my life. I said, Bob, Ken, and out walked my two brothers. Bob played college football, linebacker. Ken was just plain mean, okay? Those were my two brothers. <laughs> they walk up, and man, I just looked at these two kids, and I'm like, come on, come on. Come on, right? It, it, it was one of my favorite memories. Now, all of us, all of us can think of a time God did that. He showed up exactly how we wanted him to show up. That is not what this talk is about. <laughs> this talk is about what if I showed up at the green generators and Bob and Ken weren't there? What would be the very first thing I would do? I'd go back to my mom and I would say, Mom, did Bob and Ken get the message? Yes, I, yes, I spoke to them, both of them. Well, they didn't show up, and I got hurt. I got physically hurt. And now I'm not going to trust these two guys. Well, if you read the Psalms, if you read the book of Job, if you read sections of Romans, that's what Paul's talking about. You show up at the green generators, and God did not show up the way you wanted him to show up. He wasn't there, and you got hurt. And now the question is, am I still going to believe that God is good in the midst of the fact that he didn't show up that day? Now, Paul tackles this in one of my favorite passages. This passage is 95% my favorite passage of the New Testament. It's right up there. It's 95%. Why isn't it 100? I'll tell you why it's not 100 
in a second, because in the middle of one of my favorite passages of the entire New Testament, Paul sticks something in that I hate and would love to get rid of. So, let's take a look at the book of Romans. Uh, You can follow it on the screen. You can open your Bible. Here's what Paul says in Romans. What then shall we say to these things? We'll take a look in a second what he means by that. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Uh, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now let's just stop right there. I love it. That's 100% my favorite passage, right there, 100%. Then he ruins it. He sticks in this. He goes, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He is quoting from Psalm 44. If you want to read a psalm that will just blow you away, go read Psalm 44. In it, the psalmist says this. Listen, I would understand if we were sinful, why you didn't show up in battle and we got creamed. I'd understand if we weren't faithful in following you, but we were. I would understand if we had false gods. We didn't, and yet we got destroyed in battle, representing your name. And then he says, what, were you asleep? And how many of us have had that thought? God, do you not see what's happening to my family right now? Do you not see what's happening to me? Are you asleep? How worse would it be if my brothers were at the green generators, but they both were asleep? I'm getting pummeled. They're asleep at the green generators. Well, in Psalm 44, the psalmist has no problem saying, God, you need to wake up because we just got destroyed. He quotes Psalm 44, and then he says, listen, church, hello, prepare for slaughter. And Paul himself would later become a martyr, and then the church would face Nero's persecutions, one of the worst persecutions the church has ever faced. And then he says this, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So Paul is saying, listen, you're going to be slaughtered, and yet you're still conquerors. And that dichotomy is really hard for me to justify. It's one thing to say God loves me. It's another thing when there's so much evidence that points in the direction that he's not a caring, nurturing, or attentive father. Then he goes on. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, remember I said he started by saying, what then shall we say to these things? What were the these things he's talking about? Certainly, he's talking about the book of Romans, but specifically, he's talking about what he said earlier in chapter 8. So this is what Paul says earlier in chapter 8. He says, and if children, we're children of God, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So in a certain way, we have status with Jesus that we're going to inherit what Jesus has inherited when we got to heaven, if indeed we suffer with him. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm removing all doubt. You will suffer. If you follow Christ, I'm telling you, you're going to suffer. It's going to be physical. It's going to be your status is going to be compromised because you're Christians. And boy, we're seeing evidence of that today. 
The culture is moving distinctly away from a Christian perspective. Not that people just disagree with us, but they view us as being bigoted and hateful, as homophobes. I mean, they hate the Christian perspective. And Paul says, listen, you're going to suffer, but I promise you one thing. Not that the suffering will end, but that heaven is worth it. Um, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, on one hand, that is just not satisfying to me. It's just not satisfying to me as I watch uh, my kids suffer or as I watch friends suffer. Well, what are you going to do? Say, well, gosh, you know, hang in there because heaven's really worth it. Boy, I would never say that to a person. I would never say that. We have one friend. His name's Bill. He was out of work. It took him like four years to get a job. And in the meantime, he's losing his house. He was always in the top two for the job. He always made it to the top two. And, And he called all of us, hey, pray for this. Fast for this. I need a job. And we would pray. And he always, it was the other guy. And after a while, you're like, oh, man, I feel so bad even saying I'm going to pray for you. Right? So they're going to lose their house. His wife is going through extreme mental distress, you can imagine. And what are you going to say to him? Hey, but heaven is worth it. (laughs) So here's why this is my favorite passage. Let's go back to the text. Let's work through the text. Let's go to the next one. If God, Paul's going to ask us some questions, and how we answer the questions are going to determine if we have peace in this life or not. As American Christians, I think we're set up to fail in how we answer the questions. First question, if God is for us, who is against us? Do you believe God is for you? Regardless of what happened at the green generator, do you believe God is for you? Now, the ultimate expression of this is going to be the book of Job. The book of Job is the worst-case scenario. God says to Job and Satan, he says, what if I removed every instance of my caring for you? What if I removed every um, proof that I care for you? Would you still think I'm good and love me? And Job is a test case for that. Paul says, do you believe that God is for you, but why do you believe he's for you? Uh, Then he says this. Go ahead, next slide. Oh, before, okay, before we answer, give you his answer, you have to understand he's using a teaching technique he got from Jesus. Jesus um, shows this teaching technique that we've observed called the greater to the lesser. Uh, When Mike gets to it in the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see a big expression of it. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. If God gave you life, the greater, will he not also give you food, the lesser? If he gives you the body, the greater, will he not also give you clothes, that are the lesser, right? So I I thought of this illustration. Uh, Ladies, I get that you're the stronger of the sexes. I fully admit that women are the stronger of the sexes. Why? I mean, if nothing else, childbirth, right? Right? We have a job. You know what our job is? We, We are to coach our wives. I have a friend of mine who says, coaching a woman in childbirth is like coaching an avalanche. Go, you know what I mean? But ladies, ladies, there's two things we have to do that you don't have to do. One, we have to shave our necks. 
That's the jugular. We'll bleed out in a second. We make a mistake, right? Second, second, we ask a person to marry us. That's insane. That's crazy. It's crazy for a multitude of reasons, but one big one is this. I know nothing about diamonds. Nothing about diamonds. I go to a diamond factory. I walk there, I sit down, the man shows me two diamonds. He says, look through this microscope. He said, okay, look at diamond number one. Do you see all those black specks? Those are impurities. Look at diamond number two. I look at diamond number two through a microscope. He goes, see, less impurities. I said, as a man, hey, how much do both cost? <laughs> oh, well, this one costs a lot more, but there's less impurities. Second question, can you see this with the naked eye? He said, well, no. I said, I'm taking the cheaper one. I'm going to bank on the fact Noreen does not have a microscope in the moment. Honey, will you marry me? Stay with the rest of you. Well, I will, Tim, based on <laughs> impurities. Now, imagine I give Noreen this ring. It costs more than anything I had spent in my life at that moment. Noreen says to me, honey, yes, to marrying you. But would, could I, I even feel bad about saying this, but could I keep the cardboard box the ring came in? Honey, I gave you the ring. That cost thousands. You can keep the cardboard box that costs like what? A buck fifty. Here's what Paul's about to say. Paul's going to do his own version of the greater to the lesser, and he's going to take it to the highest level. This is what Paul says. Let's go to the next slide. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you see the principle of the greater to the lesser? He's using the greater of the greater. If God gave you Jesus, he'll give you everything else is on the table. If God sacrificed his son for you, then everything else he's willing to give you. It's a no-brainer. Now, two things very quickly. One, do you believe Jesus died for you? See, as Christians, we do this weird thing. We say, well, I believe Jesus died for everybody, all of humanity, which is absolutely true. I believe that Jesus died for the church, absolutely true. But Jesus goes much deeper than that. In Luke chapter 15, he's being pushed on the love of God by the Pharisees. He, he gives three examples of the love of God that are really interesting. One, when a woman loses one coin, she turns up the whole house looking for the one coin. When one sheep wanders away, the shepherd leaves the 99, goes for the one. And then he gives the ultimate expression. When one father has one son go rogue, prodigal, he follows that one son. The key of the three is the one, the one, the one. So did Jesus die for all of humanity? Absolutely, but he did it person by person. So in Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. By the way, in the, in the Greek, that word despising is very interesting. Despising the shame, it means to think little of. So if you were to kidnap one of my kids, and you were to call me, and you were to say, hey, I got one of your kids, $20,000, I'd be like, done. I'm sorry, I didn't think you heard what I said, 20000 done. I don't care, I want my son back. So when Hebrew says despising the shame, Jesus knew what was going to happen to him at the, at the cross. He said, fine, I'll do it. Do you understand it's going to be a horrible death? Yeah, done. I want to save the one. Now, who's the one? It's you. I absolutely believe when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he did not think of humanity as a whole. He thought of the one. He absolutely thought of you. And it was worth it to him to die a horrible death and have the Father turn his back on Jesus. I mean, talk about a crazy passage. 
is when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because of you, the one. And Jesus would do it gladly. So Paul says, do you believe God's good? Why? Because he showed up at the green generators the way that you wanted him to or because he gave you his son. Jesus died for you. Is that enough? Now, don't you feel as a Christian, sometimes you absolutely know the answer? Yes, it's technically enough. But not practically, it's not enough. Right, let's go on. Then he says this, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Right, who can actually charge you with a sin and have it stick? See, if you're a Christian, all your sin's been dealt with. All of it. Past, present, future. And when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. So all your sins have been done with. God is not mad at you anymore. See, I need to say this to my Biola students. I teach at the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles. These are students who, um, they just believe that they have to live a good life for God to love them. Right? They have to be a good Biola student. Right? And I say, listen, you can be the crappiest Biola student in the world. God's love for you did not increase or decrease one iota. Right? You can read your Bible every day. You can do everything Jesus asks of you. And his love for you did not increase or decrease one iota. He loves you because of what happened at the cross. So that kind of freedom frees us up to pursue God. So he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Then he goes through possibilities. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Next. Yes, rather, who was raised, showing that he had authority. Next. Who is at the right hand of the Father in New Testament times. Right hand of the Father means you have the Father's approval. Next. <clears throat> who also intercedes for us. Next. So the scriptures tell us that you have an adversary. The current book I'm working on right now is on spiritual battle, spiritual battle applied to marriage. Uh, we know that Satan is the great accuser. So what Satan loves to do is accuse you. If you ever feel shame in your life, you know that's not of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, guilt can be of the Holy Spirit, but not shame. So when Satan tries to say you are less than, you're a worthless person. Uh, that's coming straight from Satan. We're to reject that. God loves you. He's not angry, and he loves you just as you are. Are there things he wants you to do that you'll flourish more in his love and experience more of his love? Of course. But you don't earn his love anymore. His love has been given to you, and you received his love. That's why the Eucharist is so important. We call it embodied perspective taking, which means it is so good every week. And boy, that separates Vox from everybody else. N nobody does Eucharist every week, uh, pro most Protestant churches. But to do it every, every week to remind you, this is the body that was broken for you. This is the blood that was spilt for you. Believe God is good because of what Jesus did. That's where you need to fundamentally believe it. Next, <clears throat> who will separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, he gives a bunch of different options. Here they are, very quickly, trouble, hardship, or persecution, famine, or nakedness. By the way, for the church, that's not hypothetical. That's going to become a reality. Danger or sword, that's going to become a reality. Will any of those things separate you from the love of Christ? Next. For your sake, we're, oh, and then he gets to the problem passage. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. So, obviously, God's not saying you won't die. And he's obviously saying you won't suffer. But one thing God is promising you is nothing will separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing, will make, nothing can happen that will make Jesus think less of you. 
By the way, even if you're mad at God for not showing up at the green generators the way that you wanted to, he's okay with that. He's okay with you being angry. The writer of Psalm 44 wasn't rebuked, right? No, it's okay to express how you feel. I love what C.S. Lewis said. Lewis said, don't pray what's supposed to be in you. Pray what's in you. I love that. And by the way, God already knows what's in you. He wants you to verbalize it. So it's okay to say to God, I am supremely angry that you didn't show up at the green generators the way I wanted. Now, by the, let me just give you a hint into my life. It would be okay if it were me who got beat up at the green generators. But here's the unspoken contract I have with God. Do you have one? It's an unspoken gentleman's agreement with God, which means you don't do this, right? This is off limits for you to do. Here's my off limits. You don't touch my wife and kids. They don't suffer, right? I can suffer. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. You don't touch my wife and kids, right? And God's up there saying, oh, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Because we live in a sinful world. Things happen in this world that break God's heart, and he doesn't protect his children from it. I think he redeems it. I don't think he causes it. So here's what God is saying. I want you to live a life in which you are utterly secure in my love for you utterly secure. It's not going to have to do with your bank account. It's not going to have to do with your health. And it's not going to have to do with the prosperity of box. So here's a, here's a bizarre um, position we've been put into as a church. Okay? God, I believe you'll be good if, if we maintain or grow. Wouldn't that be amazing if we actually grew? Okay? Now I believe you're good and that's awesome. If we die by a thousand absences and eventually have to close doors because financially it's just not going to work, then we say, well, God, that's craziness. Where, where were you? Now, I do believe God answers prayer. I do believe he provides Lord prayer, give us our daily needs. I believe God does intercede, but he is saying, do not judge me on the lesser. Um, that will be a life of pain and questioning my love. Judge me on the greater. And Job did that at the very end. Job said, even though you slay me, I still believe you're good. Now, that's really hard. That's easy to say from up here. Uh, my family has experienced very little suffering. Uh, and I can't go into detail on the one or two things I would point at, but, but things that really disappointed me and disappointed a couple of my kids, you know, opportunities that, that were um, taken away because of injuries. Okay where you just sit there and you go, God, I don't get it. I prayed that he'd be healed, and it just didn't happen. You know, and that's hard when it's your kids. So let me close with this one illustration. I came across this a couple years ago. Oh, let's go to the very end, the image of the bread. So in World War II, the, the American army was liberating orphanages, concentration camps, and, the, and their stories started to come of these orphanages. You can imagine how bad some of these situations were. So the American soldiers would come in and feed these kids, but the kids would not go to bed at night because they were fearful that the next morning there wouldn't be any bread. Right? These were kids who were starving to death in these orphanages. So the American soldiers would say to them over and over, listen, I promise you, we got a ton of bread. Don't worry about it. Go to sleep. I promise you, tomorrow morning, 
you're going to have eggs. You're going to, trust me, trust me. And they would not go to sleep, these kids. So one person had an idea. He took a piece of bread and put it in the hand of an orphan and said, listen, go to sleep with this bread in your hand. This is my promise there's going to be bread in the morning. So here's what Jesus does in a fallen world full of disappointment, pain, suffering, and hardship. He says, I'm going to give you a symbol of my goodness that cannot be touched by Satan, cannot be touched by bad things happening, and it's my symbol that I love you, and you need to believe this symbol, and the symbol is the Eucharist. Right? Here's what I love about Vox. When we take communion, I love when that person looks you right in the eye and says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Uh, this is his blood spilt for you. That is a powerful moment. That is God saying for this day in the midst of a lot of counter evidence of my goodness, today I'm going to give you something that is a sign, and the sign is uh, bread and wine. That's the sign of my love for you. Now, I do believe he's good like any parent, and he intervenes, but he does, you will all have green generator moments. So let me pray for us as we prepare to take Eucharist. This is God's answer to why suffering exists today. And can you believe that he's still good? So let me pray for us before we take um, God's answer and chew on it and drink and reminded of the death of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that on one hand, you tell us not to shy away from your disappointment our disappointment. We do not need to sanitize those green generator moments. They were disappointing and confusing. Father, thank you that you let the psalmist say, wake up. And I confess sometimes I've wanted to scream that as things are happening to friends and family. But Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus, that you did not spare him that he is the promise that you are for us and love us and will not abandon us. This moment, right now, I pray for those who have a lot of faith and I pray for those who have no faith, that this morning the table would convince us of one reality, that you love us and have sacrificed deeply for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> hey, I believe Vox's best days are ahead. I really believe that God's presence is on this church. I do. But listen, God's love isn't up for grabs. His goodness is not up for question. If for some foreseen reason, Box doesn't make it, God's love or his goodness should not be in question. Would we grieve? Of course. Would we be disappointed? in maybe God, and go through a season? Sure. But his goodness are not to be up for grabs. His love didn't run out, and he didn't give up. He settled that 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and I'm sure this is going to foster a lot of questions, and feel free to send them in for Mike to answer next week. No. Um, <clears throat> actually, Mike isn't going to be up and running next week. I'm going to get up, even though I'm not preaching that Sunday, I'm going to get up and answer questions that you might have. Uh, and feel free to be honest that you got hurt at the green generators. And your Heavenly Father, who's all-powerful, I don't understand why he didn't intervene. 
and stop it? And those are hard questions. But I do think the Bible doesn't shy away from it. So let's be praying for the leadership. The leadership's an unbelievable group of people. Um, let's pray for Mike as he settles his family and gets rooted in ugh, Mordor, Ohio. <laughs> uh, you'll learn I'm from Michigan. And uh, talk about the problem of evil. It's that Ohio State so, does so well in football every year. Talk about green generator story. That's one right there. Let me pray for a blessing on you, on us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Father, today, amidst our disappointment, amidst our pain, we claim that, that Jesus died for every person in this room. Father, we don't have to prove ourselves to you. You died for us when we were at our worst. So let us go in that confidence that the future is unknown, but what has been settled is your goodness and your love. And we thank Jesus for his sacrifice. We pray in his name and his honor. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.